Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. At the 2022 Convention of States Reclaiming Liberty Summit, the Convention of States co-founder Michael Ferris gives a vision of what we will achieve through a Convention of States. Well, thank all of you. It's uh, great to see so many friends. I've, I've known many of you for a long time. Uh, others getting to know you, and I uh, hope to be able to spend time getting to know you this weekend and in the days ahead. Uh, Mark graciously uh, gave you a lot of a lot of the history. I'm going to cover that again, but just a, with a slightly different angle, because I want to lay out a framework for thinking about COS, and that framework comes from the way I'm wired. I'm wired as a problem solver. It partly came from uh, when I was a kid. Um, my dad and mom got saved when I was three years old, and uh, I was ro- raised in the home of newly minted believers in a good Bible teaching church. And every uh, couple, three Sundays, a group of uh, my parents' friends would get together for a potluck dinner at each other's house after church. And the men would sit out on the back patio and solve the problems of the world, and the women would make the food. And I would listen, I would rather than go off and play on the kids, many of the times I would listen to the men talking about solving the problems of the world, and it frustrated me to death because they'd never do anything about it. Just, you know, analyze the problem, okay. And some of their ideas I thought were pretty good, but they'd never do a thing. And it just changed my, my wiring. And so a friend of mine once said, don't tell Mike Ferris your problems, he'll start something. Um, I've, I've started 15 different entities, most of them nonprofits. Um, even though I'm, you know, I, I can't predict the future because I'm, A, I'm a Baptist by background, and you know, we're not allowed to be prophets because it leads to dancing, which leads to beer. And, uh, um, and, and I've been running nonprofit organizations for over 40 years, so I can't predict the future. But, but I am a problem solver. And so um, I solved the problem of homeschooling not being illegal. Now, of course, when I say I, I need to give you a big caveat up front. Nobody in any sphere of life of anything that's meaningful ever accomplishes anything by themselves. And so I've been given natural gifts by God. I've been given mercy by God. I've been given opportunities by God. So God gets the number one credit. And then other people have been a part of everything I've ever done. And so when I say I, I want you to understand that means Jesus and others let me play along with them. You know, so just let's get that out on the table. But just for the ease of communication, we'll talk about stuff I've done. So um, people wanted to homeschool their kids, but if you asked all 50 attorney generals in the country, is it legal to homeschool in your state, all 50 would have said in the early 80s, no, you can't do that. Now, even as a matter of statutory law, a couple of them would have been wrong. But as a matter of constitutional law, I believe they were all wrong because I believe the Constitution of the United States protected the right of parents to decide how their kids would be educated, and homeschooling was a viable, valid way of making that decision. And so that was the problem I set out to solve. Homeschooling was illegal. Through 25 years of activity, basically, that problem got solved. But if we stop with that, we don't really get the idea. There was a benefit involved. And what's the benefit of solving the problem? The benefit is, Your kids will soar academically. Your kids will soar spiritually. 
and your family will be united if you homeschool. That's the benefit. It's, you don't stop with you know, solving the problem. The problem solving leads to a benefit. Let's take another problem, Patrick Henry College. What problem was I trying to solve? Well, I was running into a bunch of people who wanted various ideas for college, and I kept saying, well, you could go to this school for that or that school for that, but they, they wanted a bunch of attributes that, as a combination, no such school existed. They wanted a faithful Christian college. And I would tell you, from my opinion, there are a lot fewer Christian colleges that are the real thing than profess to be the real thing. I quote J. Vernon McGee, that famous old radio preacher, in a different context said, they're believers, they're non-believers, and they're make-believers. And, and so... There, you know, beware of the make-believer college. I rather, I rather my kids go to a non-believer college than a make-believer college, frankly. But, in, in, and so, they wanted a school that was faithful spiritually. They wanted a school that was true to the founding principles of this country. They wanted a school that had a classical approach to education. And they want, like the idea of apprenticeship methodology. That you, you, uh, you spent part of your, your education learning on the job, how, to, how you do these things. And so, blended those th things together, and started Patrick Henry College. That was the solution. What's the benefit of that solution? And the benefit is lives have been changed, leaders have been trained, America's being blessed, and I could go on a long time, but not the po point of today. So I wanted you to see when you solve a problem, you're looking for benefits. What are the benefits? Because that's what ultimately people are motivated by. So what were the problems I was trying to solve when I dreamed up the idea of convention of states. Well, there's a runaway federal government in every way you want to talk about runaway. Runaway spending, uh, you know, people say that the federal government spends like a drunken sailor. That is an offense to drunken sailors. <laughs> drunken sailors only spend their own money. Uh, and so it, it's, you know, runaway thirst for power an unchecked judiciary. We're using international law to decide questions for America. Um, I went and got a degree in LLM and public international law from the University of London so that I would be versed on all those issues so I could fight because I believe one little simple thing. Americans should make the law for America. And, and so... Treaties, historically, serve a good purpose. But treaties, properly understood, are about how nations treat nations. They're not about how a nation treats its own people. That's what constitutions and laws are for. And those get decided properly by the people within that country. Nobody else has the authority, morally or otherwise, to decide that. So we, I saw that. And then I saw an unchecked administrative state. And like America should make its own laws, well, there's a particular group of Americans that should make our laws. And that is at the state level, when you have to vote on things on the ballot from time to time, the people themselves can do it in that narrow context, can make the laws. But most of the time, we're a republic. And that means we elect legislators to make laws. And that means judges don't make laws. Presidents don't make laws. Governors don't make laws. The Department of X shouldn't make laws either. But we've got a stack of administrative laws 
that would, I, I'm sure, it, I haven't measured it exactly, but it's going to come really close to go from floor to ceiling if you stack up the Code of Federal Regulations. That's about how big it is. It, that's approximately correct. It is a huge problem, and Congress says, well, we're, we're delegating our decision-making authority. Well, they're doing much more than that. They're giving away the right of the people to throw the rascals out if we don't like the laws they made. They can't give away our rights to elect the people who make the law. It is a fundamental right of every American and every time an administrative regulation is passed in this country that binds private people. I don't care if they make an administrative regulation that sets the dress code of the Justice Department. Fine with me. That's a valid administrative regulation because it, it controls only the internal operation of the government. Knock yourself out whatever you want to do. But if you're going to make a, a rule that binds me or any other private person in this country, any other private property in this country, you've just made a law. And all legislative authority is vested in the Congress of the United States. In fact, the most rule, important rule in any government is who has the power to make the rules. And that's why Article 5 is so important, because it specifies who has the power to make the rules of the ultimate law, the Constitution of the United States. And that's why they fight so hard against us, because they do not want to cede lawmaking power back to the people and back to the states. That's so key. So those are some of the problems. I'll just give you a, a general drip, but you know what those problems are. And we could go a long time. We could list a lot of other reasons. But that's, that's the general thread of things I was trying to solve. So... What are the amendments that will fix the problem? And then I want us to ask, answer in just a few minutes. I just want to signal ahead. We've got to ask ourselves, what are the benefits? Because if we just tell people what the problems are, we'll win some people over to our side. If we tell people how we're going to solve those problems, we'll win some more people over to our side. But until we tell people how this is going to benefit them, we're not going to reach our maximum potential of winning people who are winnable. Now, we can't win everybody. We don't need to win everybody. But we need to win people who are wired right. And I think there are more people wired right in this country than generally is thought. And I think we can go get them. So let's talk about some of the changes that we could make to fix the law. What will happen if we have the Convention of States? What kind of amendments will come out, and, or at least could come out? And what benefit to the country would they be? So let's think of a few of them. Now, there's a couple I'm not going to discuss today because they're so well known and you understand them in general. For example, term limits, you get that. And so I'll just, just leave that one to the side because it's well known. And a, a second, in other words, you know, a balanced budget provision of some sort, some kind of debt limitation, that's, that's good enough, you know, that's a good thing too. But that's well known, I'm going to leave that to the side. I'm going to talk about five other things that are essential to get in addition to those things that I think will be the most important things that could come out of an Article 5 convention. The first is to return the General Welfare Clause to its original meaning. Now, if you want to know the meaning of the General Welfare Clause, yeah, thank you, is you need to know it came from the Articles of Confederation. They picked it up and moved it over. They did that with a few things. And if you think that the General Welfare Clause in the Article of Confederation meant that Congress could spend money on any fool thing you, they wanted, you don't know anything about the Articles of Confederation. It's because Congress was hamstrung. It didn't have real authority to do much of anything, and it was too powerless. There was a problem. We needed to fix it. You know, we, we couldn't, you know, trade was messed up. There was all kinds of problems. The country was crashing under the Articles of Confederation. And, but they weren't trying to establish the rule. 
that the Supreme Court gave us in the 1930s in Butler versus the United States, and once again, the Butler did it. Um, yeah, it was, you know, uh, there's a, a, the decision to say that the general welfare clause means that Congress can spend money on any fool thing it wants is about a paragraph and a half. It is about that much on a page. And they don't bother to even explain why. They just say, well, you know, some of the founders thought this and some of the founders thought that, and we're going to choose this one over that one for reasons we're just too busy to explain to you. That trillions of dollars have flowed, you know, all of the debt is responsible for that paragraph and a half. And so getting the general welfare clause right, and I, we could go into it in great detail, but I'm not going to, just this principle. If the states can spend money on a subject matter, the federal government can't. Another way of saying it, the federal government can only spend money in furtherance of its specifically enumerated powers. That's it. And so can the federal government spend money on education? No, because it is not one of their specifically enumerated powers, and the states can spend money on that. And so you can go down the list, but that framework is exactly what it meant, is the nation could only spend money on things that were in furtherance of the enumerated powers and serve the general welfare clause, or serve the general welfare of the country, meaning within your enumerated powers, you've got to do it in a way that is not some special deal for somebody. You know, no, no cut uh, favoritism, no local favoritism. You've got to spend the money Two rules, number one, it's got to be according to, in connection with a, a, an enumerated power, and two, it's going to be general in nature, no special deals for anybody. That's what it meant. Get back to that, and the federal spending will go down, 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 down. I, it's impossible to give you an exact number, but my guess is it would be someplace around 20% of the federal budget would remain, and 80% would go away if we got the general welfare clause. Oh. So. Number two, fix the Commerce Clause. Now, some of you are, look like you're maybe my contemporaries. Uh, I'm 71, which you're supposed to say, that's not possible. But you didn't do it quickly enough, so we're, we're, not, we're not doing that. So um, you remember Dionne Warwick, Trains and Boats and Planes, okay? That's the Commerce Clause. If you're at a General Motors factory, everything that happens inside General Motors is not commerce. I don't care where you got your stuff from. I don't care where your stuff is going. That's manufacturing, not commerce. Agriculture is not commerce. Banking is not commerce. Commerce is shipping stuff. When the truck, the weird looking truck pulls up to the General Motors plant and puts those cars on the truck, commerce starts. If that truck is going to go across the state line, interstate commerce has started. If it's not going to go across the state line, intrastate commerce has started. But commerce starts at the loading dock. When the truck gets to the car dealership and loads the car off the truck, commerce is done. Commerce is shipping stuff. That's it. That's all that it is. Now, the way we know this is Congress has the exclusive power to regulate interstate commerce. Who regulates banking? Well, most banking laws are part of the Uniform Commercial Code. Where does the Uniform Commercial Code come from? The states. The states had a have a group of commissioners that they call the Uniform Commercial Code Commission, or the Uniform Law Commission. And 
they get together on a periodic basis and they say, there are some issues that we'd like to be uniform on and to coordinate on. Banking was one of those, so that your checks would clear no matter how they were across the country, so your ATM card would work. That's all state law. There's no federal law involved with that. That's state law. And then every state has adopted the Uniform Commercial Code. Minor changes here, here and there, but state by state. But basically, it's all the same. So proving that if we need a national solution within the state's jurisdiction, they know how to do it. We don't need the federal government to solve everything just because there's a national problem. States have proved for decades that they know how to do this. So since the states can regulate banking, it's not the Commerce Clause because Congress has the exclusive jurisdiction over interstate commerce. States may not regulate interstate commerce, only Congress. So we know that banking's not commerce. Banking's not interstate commerce. We know that environmental regulations, that's not commerce. That's not interstate commerce because the states can regulate it. Anything the states can regulate may not be regulated by the federal government under the original meaning of the, of the Commerce Clause. And so getting commerce to mean what commerce meant in 1787 is the key thing. And that a clarifying amendment would fix that. We need to stop the administrative state from making all these laws and, and, and burdening us up with those. I was the chairman of the Governor's Commission on Regulatory Reform in Virginia in 94. And the recommendation we made didn't get enacted, but it was the right re recommendation is let the state agencies propose regulations if they want. Fine, use their expertise. Every single one of them has to be enacted by the legislature. Because then you have political responsibility. If you're gonna make some dumb rule, like the EPA one time, they had to decide we're gonna protect federal wet wetlands. Well, Congress didn't decide how much land had to be wet and how wet did it have to be. And so they, the EPA made up the answer to that question. And the answer was an acre of wet land was enough. You know, it could have been 100 acres, could have been 1,000 acres, but that's not an administrative decision. That's a legislative decision because they decided a very important question. How wet did it have to be? When a goose was flying over your land on the wettest day in 100 years, if it could see its reflection, this is called the glancing goose test, and I'm not making this up. Uh, that is wetland enough, and you have to be subject to the wetlands rules if the goose flying on the... What a stay in 100 years could see his reflection. How that we know that they were looking down at that moment, we don't know. <laughs> but we gotta stop that. And okay, it's an easy fix, it really is. Bring every single proposed regulation in and let Congress vote on it. First of all, that by itself would shut down the regulatory business in a big way and you'd have political responsibility. No more pointing, the congressman said, well I wrote a letter to the EPA and you know, chastised them over this. <laughs> Nonsense. You gave them the authority to make rules. We're gonna get that authority back in your lap so you bear the responsibility. So. There are ways to put checks and balances on the judiciary and I don't have time to explore that right now, but that's just something that can be done. Then finally, and I'll mention this briefly as well, we can require all treaties to be ratified by two-thirds of the Senate. Now, when I say that, NAFTA and the new version of NAFTA that was just signed into and, um, and ratified by the House and the Senate, those are treaties. Under international law, those are treaties. Uh, the United States has created 
classifications of international documents, and even though they're all treaties under international law, we don't think that we have to ratify them correctly. We have, last time I checked, and this is a little out of date, so it's, it's more in both categories, we have about 5,000 ratified treaties in this country. We have about 9,000 treaties that are not ratified because they're called executive agreements. And the, the difference between a, an executive agreement and a treaty is the State Department decides that one's an executive agreement, one's a treaty. It's totally arbitrary. And, and so we shouldn't be making law, and while we're at it, while we're fixing it, we need to enact a rule that American treaties are going to deal solely with how we involve ourselves with foreign nations, not how America treats Americans. And so the whole segment of, of UN treaties um, that, you know, that are, are really controversial, like the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child and so on, those are off the table if we do this correctly because those are about how Americans, America treats Americans and that's got to be decided by American law, not by international law. But as great as those things sound to all of us, we need to tell why these things are good for people. And we need to tell them things like, you'll get to keep more of your own money. And schools will be better. Your, the education of your kids will be better. I one time walked, I was doing a homeschool issue in, in um, Albany, New York, and I walked from the State Department of Education down to the federal courthouse to file a lawsuit to sue these people. And on the way, I passed the city government, the county government, and there's a regional government in New York called BOCES, where they have, the edu they have five layers, and there's the Federal Department of Education, five layers of government regulating education. Do you think that schools are five times better because of the five regulations? No, they make them worse every single time. Schools should be run by the people who see the kids, know the kids, and love the kids. And that includes the parents, that includes the local principal, and that includes the teachers. That's it. I don't think, you, you know, uh, and so if we get back to the principle that one level and only one level of government deals with each issue, people will be happier, we'll make more of our own decisions, and you'll see the government officials that are making your decisions much more often. They're not faceless, nameless bureaucrats. They're your neighbors, and you can talk to them, and you can talk common sense to them more often than not. And, you know, not completely. Everything will be more efficient and we'll be happier. And we can make a, lot, a long list of things, but, but what I really want to introduce to you is the idea, let's sell the benefits, not just the problems and not just we're solving, that's very fun. Um, I have to do that later for fun. Um, not just solving the problems, we need to sell the benefits because people will be encouraged by the benefits. Finally, do not let anybody tell you that what we're about to do is impossible. Don't ever buy into that. Number one, I was told when I started HSLDA, you are going against the most powerful political group in the country, the NEA. At the state level, that's absolutely the case. And some of the time, they're opposed to the Department of Education. Some of the times, they're opposed to the superintendents. Some of the times, they're opposed to the principals. On this, they're all on the same side. And you're going against all those people. We won. We won. I was told it was impossible. It took 25 years, but we won. I was told that on the front page of the Washington Post, the day Patrick Henry College opened, we were told it was impossible and this would fail. 
Patrick Henry College is 22 years old, it's fully accredited, and it has the best pre-law program in the country, bar none. Our LSAT scores are higher at Harvard and Yale. We are the best in the country. You have anybody who wants to go to law school, send them to Patrick Henry first. I have led a, a uh, I, I, as of last, as of the 1st of October, I'm no longer the CEO of Alliance Defending Freedom. At my own initiative, my hand-picked recommendation to the board, I've been training for six years, is now the CEO, she's terrific. But I led ADF through the season where we were responsible for much of the Dobbs decision. We drafted the law for the state of Mississippi that led to the Dobbs decision. We did all kinds of legal work for them all through the process. We were co-counsel. We were asked to be quiet, silent co-counsel, and we did it. We didn't care who got the credit. We just wanted the job done, and we wanted one. And I will praise Lynn Fitch as long as I live for making the courageous decision to not ask for a partial victory, but to ask the Supreme Court to reverse Roe versus Wade. She was the one who, who, who did that. Yeah. We were told for 49 years that it was impossible to reverse Roe versus Wade. God reversed Roe versus Wade. So what we're trying to do, it's going to take time. It's going to take sacrifice. But do not listen to the naysayers who say it's impossible, because it is not impossible. I have seen God do the impossible time and time again in my life. And I just tell you this, let's do what's right. And I will say this, predicting the future. I'm going to be a delegate to the Convention of the States, and we're going to save this country. God bless you. Thank you very much. I mean, you guys know the story, and I, I want to I dig a little bit deeper into the story of, though, how, how we came together. Uh, there is somebody in the room right now. Where is she? Terry Dunn, are you sitting out there somewhere? Raise your hand for me if you're sitting out there. There, there she is, right? Do you see her right there? Okay, so Terry Dunn is responsible, literally, for all of you being in this room right now. Amen. And the reason that is... And she hates that I'm doing this, I guarantee you. So, <laughs> But here's why. I, wa I want you to understand why, because this is so important. Because she is a woman who is obedient to God. So at some point, uh, after her husband, Tim, and I had become friends, and he serves as the chairman of one of our boards, one of my closest friends, one of, one of my mentors who helped me come to Jesus Christ, so very important people in my life. And at some point, Terry said to Tim that, and, and I've talked to her about it, she just said she was just being obedient to God. She felt God was telling her this needed to happen. She said, you know, Tim, you really need to introduce Mark to Mike Ferris. And I didn't come out of the homeschool community. I didn't really know anything about the homeschool community. First time I ever met homeschoolers was during the Tea Party movement. I'd literally never met a homeschooler. And so he wasn't familiar to me. I didn't know his name. A lot of you did many years before I did. Um, and Terry said that she knew that we would be great friends 
which has become absolutely true. One of my closest friends in the world, I'd do anything for Mike, closer than brothers. And, um, and she said, I think Mark needs to know about this Article 5 thing that Mike's working on. I knew a little bit about Article 5. If you look at my history, and, and again, I think God prepares us for what's to come. A year before you and I met, I had co-hosted a conference at Harvard with Larry Lessig on the use of Article 5. And my position at the time, it's on video, I mean, you can see this, was, like, I'm not opposed to it, but I don't really see that this is practical. Like, it's, it's impossible, right? It doesn't, there's more important things we can do, right? Like, I, I just don't know. I was very neutral on the thing. And, but I at least, because of that conference at Harvard Law School, had become pretty intimate with the idea of using Article 5. I'd heard the debates on both sides. Uh, you guys will find this bit of trivia interesting. Remember Andy Biggs from Arizona Senate who was the thorn in our side? He was my guest at that conference. Okay? <laughs> yeah, and he's a good congressman though. Yeah. Actually, he's doing a pretty good job yeah. there in D.C. So, um, because Terry told Tim to make this introduction, the introduction was made. Um, I got on the phone with Mike Ferris. Uh, we hit it off right away. He presented this idea to me. I had figured out who he was by, by then, and that really mattered to me because to me, I looked at Mike like, okay, this is a guy who knows how to do impossible things. So when he presents this idea to me that I thought was impossible and lays out a plan, I'm like, okay, now I got a plan and I'm dealing with a guy who knows how to do impossible things. And that meant a lot to me. You know, who you're talking to matters, what their background is, what their history is, that they, they've got the scars, they've proven they know how to do stuff. and so. I loved it. We presented it to our board. I remember in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, we did a meeting and uh, the, the board loved it. And the question came like, Mike, do you have like an actual plan for what this would cost and how we would set it all up? And he said, you, you mean in writing? Yeah. And, he, and we, he said, no, I mean, I don't have that with me. And I remember, I think it was Tim that said, well, how long would it take you to put that together? And I think all of us were thinking like, I'll get back to you in a couple of weeks. And Mike's like, uh, can I have until after lunch? <laughs> Literally. And so we ate lunch and Mike went back to his room and sketched out the plan for convention of states. And they loved it and we loved it. I think Mike Ruthenberg, are you in the room somewhere? Mike's still, he's back in the corner there, my lifelong best friend, 41 years, our chief operating officer, right? We love Mike Ruthenberg. Mike still has the original notes. The, hand, the handwritten plan. I mean, this is just incredible that we have this. And this is important. By the way, that's going to end up in the Smithsonian, I believe. Yeah. Right? And so the board said, yeah, we're going to do this thing. And so we launched this impossible project together. And Mike and I joined hands, and we became brothers in the battle. And we hired a bunch of young staffers from Patrick Henry College. We opened an office in Percival, right near the college. Uh, I'm really proud to say that uh, Robert Kelly, who is now our general counsel, was maybe the first time, one of the first couple hires, right, recommended mm -hmm. by Mike, an absolute debate star, a moot court star with, with Mike, and uh, we've raised him up. I think he is the single best political nonprofit counsel in the country at this point. Incredible. <laughs> Speaking of the pre-law students that you get out of Patrick Henry. And then a few years back, how many years back did you go to ADF? Six. Six years ago, Mike called me uh, in what was one of the most horrifying and tragic phone calls of my life <laughs> and said, 
I have this opportunity and I feel called by God to go to ADF. I got this opportunity to lead ADF and I, I think this is a calling from God. And my heart sank because on a personal level, Mike was my partner and my friend and my co-leader of the organization. That's a lonely moment when a person that's that important in your life and in the work that you're doing says, I need to step away. And my response was, you know, if this is what you believe, if you prayed about this and this is a calling from God, then absolutely you need to go do that. And he did. And it was a loss to the organization. I, I can't lie about that. It was difficult to operate. It took us a while to adjust operating without Mike. And uh, he went out and did God's work. Uh, 14 cases at the Supreme Court, 13 victories, secured religious liberty in the United States of America. An incredible record. Because he was... There's a theme here, right? So Terry was obedient to God. Mike was obedient to God. Uh, I had to ask God for forgiveness for some of the things I was thinking when he left, so maybe I wasn't the most obedient. Uh, but this is what happens. But God always has a plan that is so much bigger and so much better than our plan. Uh, and God's plan, we, we don't know what it looks like one minute into the future, let alone a day or a year or six years into the future, right? It just unfolds moment by moment and hour by hour and day by day, but it always unfolds in the most amazing ways. And so there is something now unfolding in God's plan, which you guys are going to be the first to know about. It's not something that we've talked about before. So I'm, I'm going to let Mike tell you about the next chapter in God's plan. Well, great. Um, because I... Um, uh, love ADF and its mission, and I, I uh, intend to stay there in a part-time fashion. Um, uh, I'm going to get to be doing lawyering rather than administrative work, um, and meetings, 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 uh, and I'm gonna be half-time starting in January. And so, when this, as this was taking place, I called Mark and said, is there a way I can return to Convention Estates? And, uh, and, So as of January 1st, I'll be doing two things. I'll be helping ADF, and I will be enthusiastically also helping Convention of the States. And we're going to push it over the top. It is hard for me to describe how that makes me feel. It's, uh, you know... When you, when you go through a, a loss, and it was a loss like that, and I, I honestly never expected that this moment would happen. I, I didn't look that far into the future. I don't have the ability to see like that. And I tend not to work like that anyway. You know, you deal with something, and you move on, and you go into the next chapter. To get to write another chapter together, to me, is just an absolutely extraordinary privilege. In addition to being my co-founder, he's one of my mentors. So to have a chance to to work with somebody like this intimately, and all of you guys will get that chance too because you know we're a family, right? Uh, it's just an incredible, amazing, unbelievable opportunity. I was standing in the back of the room with Mike Ruthenberg and he said that when you walked on stage, he started crying. That's amazing. Now just to get 
like it's just it's an unbelievable thing that's happened. So I want to ask you a few questions sure. to close out. What's it like to, for you to walk into this room to see what's happened in the last six years, to know that, you know, it's kind of your baby, it's our baby together, and, and you walk in and there's 600 grassroots leaders in this room. We're in all 50 states, 19 states under the bridge. How's, what's that like? Well, it's, uh, you know, we have not completely not talked to each other. Right. We, we, you know, we talk to each other from time to time. And you've asked me to make a call or two here yep. and there, and I've, I've been happy to do it. But, but it's been extremely limited. And so I didn't pay attention to the developmental growth of the organization. The way I mean, I ran it briefly right. myself. And, and so um, this is amazing. It's just amazing. Um, I, I've, I've seen what big infrastructure can do. I mean, ADF has 400 employees. We have, you know, it's a, it's a big organization. You, this has grown. We, I gotta get my, my pronouns correct. We are a, <laughs> are a big organization. By the way, anybody ever asked me my, my pronouns, it's your majesty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. Um, we'll be happy to honor that. Yeah, okay, all right. Um, I'll settle for your excellency, but. Um, the, um, it's just amazing what's happened. And, and, and the ability to do it, the, the combination of staff growth, which staff helps the volunteers do their job. And, and, and um, without your quartermaster group, yep. the, your soldiers don't uh, get the battle done correctly. And so, it, you know, you guys are the, are the ultimate team. You're the one that are going to take the land. And, and so to see you organized, multiplied, supported, trained, professional, but still absolutely grass, grassroots and you know, salt of the earth kind of people, this is just off the charts wonderful. And it's, it's staggering to see what's been done. So. You know, there, uh, at the last summit, th there was a moment where I sat on stage with Tom Coburn. And, and you knew Tom, mm -hmm. and loved Tom like I did. Any recollections of Tom Coburn that you could share with folks? I remember you and I going to see him in his office in the Capitol uh, when we were trying to talk him into helping us. Yep. And uh, he was down to earth, but he was, you know, basically, he wasn't gonna take any smoke. You know, yep. if we were there to blow smoke, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work with Tom Coburn. And, and so the fact that you and I were able to take the, the cross-examination that he gave us and convince him was, it was a thrilling moment it's because you know, he was one of the smartest, wisest, you know, just good gut instincts about government and what's right. Uh, to, to convince him that there, of the rightness of this was really an important milestone in the, in the history of the organization. And, uh, and so uh, I'll always treasure that time, among others. I mean, I, I did events with the three of us, and I did yep. events with just Tom and me. I, I did events in Oklahoma with Tom, and. Uh, they're great. I mean, he uh, he cut to the chase. He got down to it. 
and he didn't suffer fools gladly. So I, no. uh, that's great by me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so. you know, uh, I know we've got the Oklahoma team here, and they managed. They they had a sunset provision yeah. in their resolution. And in honor of the great Dr. Tom Coburn, they got that removed. Good. So I thought yeah. you ought to know that. Um, I want to ask you also about, so you come in and now we have Rick Santorum as a senior advisor. And you actually probably have more years of experience with Rick in, in the Christian pro-life movement yeah. than I do. Tell me what it's like to come in and, and have him sitting here with us. Well, Rick, um, he, he's moved within uh, Virginia. Uh, we used to be we were really pretty close to each other. Right. And I'd, you know, I, I'd see his wife at the gas station and, you know, uh, at the grocery store from time to time. And um, among many other things, I mean, I, when he was running for president, I helped him. Um, I thought it was, he was the right guy. Uh, and so um, I, you know, in fact, I was on one of his you know, tight-knit advisory groups. And uh, so Rick uh, loves his country, he loves God, and he is very eminently get-things-done kind of a person. And if, if to convince him also that this is a way to get things done is a big deal. Because people have been, you know, you, you, you've been in Washington, D.C. for that long. You either get hardened for what's right or you get jaded. And he is not jaded. He is, he's become burnished steel. And, uh, and he's also just un, unflappable, salt of the earth, talks to anybody. Um, you know, I've been around political people that, you know, they think, you know, uh, do you know who I am? And, <laughs> And the correct answer to that is, I don't know, but if you go ask the lady over there at the information desk, maybe she can tell. <laughs> uh, but um, so Rick, Rick is a good man, and to have him um, filling a leadership role is, is another sign of the, the maturity and the growth and the excellence of this organization. Awesome. Okay. So you guys all know and love Rick. And this is, he's integrated into our family fast. Uh, so we've got a few minutes left. There's, there's one more kind of historic, historical piece I want to go over with you, which is uh, you know Mark Levin pretty well. Yeah, I do. See him at the grocery store, too. There you go. Yeah. Same neighborhood. Uh, this is a good neighborhood, of, yeah, I would say. I don't know exactly where the bunker is, but I, I, can, get, <laughs> I can get within a mile. <laughs> no one's allowed to know exact coordinates, yeah, Mike. Yeah. Uh, and so like, there's, there was a place I know in town there, at least pre-COVID, I think it yeah. shut down. Didn't the Bob Evans shut down post-COVID? Yeah. And you guys would occasionally have breakfast there together. And so uh, talk about the early days when Levin writes Liberty Amendments and we start this whole thing and, and what that was like for you, because you knew him for a long time. Yeah, I, I, I got to know him a lot better because of this. Right. Um, uh, but Mark is um, a profound thinker um, and a profound communicator. Um, and so, and among other things, we both cherish Ed Meese. And, uh, and so that was, that was really kind of one of our, our aligning points. Uh, and uh, in different ways, I mean, he worked directly for him at the Justice Department and I known Ed through lots of other things. Um, uh, 
I, I was, when, when I saw the book, I, I, can, I can picture myself sitting in my home desk talking to you about his book. And I, it was just like, oh my goodness, this is the biggest thing. I mean, we couldn't imagine how big this was. Uh, and uh, we essentially launched simultaneously, yeah. which meant we had both been working on exactly the same thing for a few months ahead. Uh, you know, he's writing this book and getting it edited and published, and we're setting up the stuff to, you know, launch COS. And at that moment, I said, God's in this. That, that was, that was the, the only conclusion I could come to. God's in this. Yeah. Okay, one more thing. We got about a minute left, and I'm going to let you close with this, and then I'll close out with some announcements for y'all. Um, you're sitting here. You're looking at all these people. These are the key warriors. What's your one piece of advice to them as we go forward from here? Walk with courageous hope, because it, it, you know, I, I learned a long time ago that courage is not fearlessness. Courage is doing what's right even when you have a good reason to be afraid. And so let's keep doing what's right. The world's going to hate us. You know, there, there are political forces that will hate us. You know, some on the left, some on the right, they're saying the same things. They're out of the same playbook, apparently. And anybody that's, any, for just starters, anybody believes that the Constitution of the United States is an illegitimate doc, document cannot call themselves a constitutionalist. And so, uh, so, so by definition, anybody that says that the, the, the original convention was a runaway is, an, is a, not a constitutionalist, by definition, because they say it was illegal, it was illicit, it was improper. So, so don't listen to those people. Don't get discouraged by those people. With courageous hope, let's go, let's keep walking. And when the time's right, God's going to deliver the victory. Your new senior advisor, Mike Ferris. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.